why don't we open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. Luke, chapter 3, and if you've been joining us these last few weeks, you know that we have recently began the Gospel of Luke, and here learning what the physician, the doctor, Luke, uh, chronologically records an account for us to know with reliable testimonies, the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. And here we find ourselves in chapter three, after the birth of Jesus, after the childhood of Jesus, after the upbringing of Christ, and we found ourselves in chapter two where Jesus uh, stayed back in Jerusalem when his family was celebrating the Passover feast. And his mother Mary approached Jesus after looking for him for three days with Joseph and says, why have you done this to us? We have been worried, anxious, looking for you everywhere. And he responds, that great response that we all should have in our hearts as well, I must be about my father's business. Now that is the heartbeat as to how we ought to respond uh, when those people want our attention, right? When the world wants to distract us, when things pull us away, that this year we would say, it is my pursuit. This year it is my master passion. Uh, it is the priority of my life. I must be about my father's business. How many of us can say amen to that today? Amen. We have to be about our father's business. And here now we receive the, the work and ministry of the forerunner, who is John the Baptist. God has been silent between the Old Testament and New Testament for 400 years until he spoke through the prophet named John the Baptist. And that's what we titled the message this morning, A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. If you like taking notes, would you write that down? A Voice Crying in the Wilderness. John the Baptist is a mouthpiece. John the Baptist is an instrument of God with repentance at the heart of his message. He brought a message of repentance. He called sinners to repentance. That was the heart of the message of John the Baptist. And he's described his ministry in three ways here in chapter three as a road builder, number two, as a farmer, and then also as a counselor, you're gonna see three pictures that illustrate the mission and work, the ministry of John the Baptist, the road builder, the farmer, and the counselor. I wanna invite you that you would stand on your feet with me as we read Luke chapter three from verses one through six. And I'll read the odd verses, and I'll ask that you read out loud together the even verses. The Gospel of Luke chapter three, beginning in verse one. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iteria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Albilini. And he went into the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Verse five, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low 
The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message, a message that we need to hear today, a message that we must respond to and apply in our lives. Thank you for that voice that cries out in the wilderness. And we pray that today you meet us in our own spiritual condition, Lord, and that you would shake us from the inside out, that we would also come to repentance, true repentance. In Jesus' name, together we said, amen, amen. You may be seated. In Luke chapter three, beginning in verse one, here we see that John is the road builder, the road builder. And the way that Luke describes and presents this time is that he gives us uh, not only those that were in political power, but he also names and describes those that were the spiritual leaders of that time. Notice in verse one, he, he speaks at the appointed time. He gives us a historical account. And he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, notice Tiberius Caesar is an emperor. If you like taking notes, you can write that down. The emperor of the Roman Empire. He was known for his cruelty, his harassment, oppression towards the Jewish people. Not only the emperor, but also Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And he was one who oppressed the Jewish people by now... Uh, responsibly causing them to pay taxes to Rome. So this was Pontius Pilate. Herod being tetrarch or a leader of a region of Galilee, his brother Philip, a tetrarch of Iteria, and the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. So he wants to give us a, a secular historical framework. And the reason why he does this is that we would know, we would have with certainty, with reliability, that he records this with a general time that we know these events did take place. That you can search through history and learn that this was a certain time. That this was a certain now time period. These were the political leaders in power, but notice the spiritual leaders in power as well. Verse two, while Anus and Caiaphas were high priests. And he names two high priests. Now we know through scripture in the Old Testament that there was to be only one high priest. But here he names both of them. Why? Because the mention of two high priests uh, tell us that both of these men were corrupt spiritual leaders. These were Jewish spiritual leaders that were more interested in, in power politics of the time spiritually than they were in serving God or serving the people. And it's so interesting because oftentimes you think that it is the person in power, it is the person with authority, it is the person with experience, it is the person that has a title that God speaks to, but he's describing a certain time period with seven different names to tell us about the moral degradation, the depravity, the decline spiritually in the Roman Empire and in the Jewish people. This was a time period during this time that everything seemed hopeless to people. But this is when God was preparing to send a mighty deliverer, a savior. I think we all can identify with these first few verses in that this is a time period where it is very dark as well. 
that due to culture and society that has turned their back on the Lord, that oftentimes people have a sense of hopelessness, that they are restless without answers. But it was a time like the ones we're living in right now that God was preparing a voice in the wilderness to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, if you notice in those two verses also is that seven names are mentioned. A Roman governor, a Roman emperor, three tetrarchs, rulers and regional leaders of an area, two Jewish high priests, but God's word did not come to any of them. The message of God came to John the Baptist, a humble Jewish prophet. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? God's word is gonna come to that person because of their title or their power or their position. And it's not who God oftentimes uses who we think. And this is why in verse two, you find this phrase that everything else in chapter three is built on. In fact, everything in the ministry of John the Baptist is built on. Everything in the church today is built on this. And I want you to underline it in your Bible because it's, it's very prominent. It stands out. It says, the word of God. During times of spiritual decline, during times of hopelessness, during times of people turning their back on God in a dark culture and society, notice what we need as well, the word of God. That is exactly what we need. The word of God came to them during a time that they needed the most. I think today we need to be hungry for the word of God in our lives as well. That we would desire for the word of God, that we would want the word of God in the days that we're living in. That's when you come to church, you're not coming for entertainment or for music. If you come to church here, you're coming for the word of God. That's what's gonna be taught here at this church. The word of God. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, notice, in the wilderness. That's also important to notice not only that it's speaking regarding the word of God or John the Baptist, the son of Zacharias, but also the place that he received the word of God in. He received the word of God in the wilderness. The revelation of the word of God came to him in the deserts. It reminds us very clearly, the Lord speaks to us in the wilderness. Sometimes we think that we are in the wilderness season spiritually of our lives. We're in a wilderness time period as a country or society where there, even in the wilderness, God's word is revealed. And the word of God came to him, notice number one, because he was listening. The word of God will come to you too right now, no matter what season you find yourself in whether it's the wilderness or not. His word will come to you if you are listening. And the word of God oftentimes comes to us in the wilderness. God speaks in the wilderness. I want you to know that. In times of spiritual droughts or heaviness, or oftentimes you're spiritually burdened, well, God wants to speak in the wilderness. If you were here on Wednesday, you know that we're learning through Exodus and we are finding out regarding how God raised up Moses, how he prepared him, how he developed him in the wilderness, in the desert there in Midian. And Moses, after having received 40 years of the best education in the world there in the palace of Pharaoh, 
Now Moses has to take a postgraduate course of 40 years in the university of the wilderness. And how many times after having thought that we were trained, after having thought that we were prepared, does God say, okay, now that you think you're ready, let me just send you to the school of wilderness. Let me train you to teach you now how to hear the voice of God. Because human effort, human intelligence, your position or title is not enough. We need to learn how to hear the voice of God. And John the Baptist was there in the wilderness learning to hear the voice of God. In fact, think about David, the psalmist, the shepherd that was a psalmist that became a king. Much of his training was given to him during the wilderness years. Many of the Psalms that you and I read that we sing are given to us while he was in the wilderness. Elijah, the prophet, learned many of the most important lessons in the desert as well. And here the word of God comes to John the Baptist while the nation of Israel is living in spiritual wilderness. And I want you to record that, remind yourself that, remember that today. They were in spiritual wilderness. They were in unbelief. They, they had not heard from God in a long time. The roads to spiritual reality were twisted. They were in despair. They were upside down. They were lost. The corruption, not only through politics, but through the spiritual leaders had weakened this nation spiritually. And the people desperately needed to hear a voice from God. And there at the moment of their greatest need to hear the voice of God, God gave John a voice. He, he was that faithful voice. Today, you know what we need? A faithful voice that hears from God. Too many people today want to be an echo of everything else that they hear. But if you're hearing from the word of God, you can be the voice today that shares of the coming of the Messiah to people. The voice, the instrument, the vessel, the mouthpiece that is announcing God's salvation. What is John the Baptist doing? He is announcing the salvation of God. There are many people that, that don't know the salvation of God. And the word of God comes to him, gives him a voice in the wilderness. And notice what he does after having received the word of God. In verse three, it says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan. I want you to circle the word he went. That's an action word. That's a verb there. What does that mean? That means that having received the word of God, having heard the word of God, we have a responsibility as a church. We have a responsibility to go. It's not enough for you to just listen to the word of God today. It is also important that you go, that you go and that you preach. He began to fulfill his calling as the forerunner of the Messiah. And you notice what he does here is that he speaks boldly, as we're gonna see in the next few verses, regarding this message because he's been sent by God and because the message that he has is a message from God. How is it that we can stand bold in a world that we live in today? Why? Because you have a message from God. Because you have been sent by God. And it says that he went to both places or that area that was surrounding the Jordan River. In fact, they would say that he went into all the region around. Notice that from the place where he was at, everywhere that surrounded it, he went doing one thing, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
You see, today you are receiving the Word of God. You know the truth, the gospel of the Word of God. Now we have a responsibility to go to the surrounding areas where we are from or living in, and there preach the gospel of Jesus. Now you notice that the word preach is not given to a man that is a pastor ordained. You don't need a pulpit to preach. I want you to know that. <laughs> There's so many people that think, you know what? The preaching ministry, it's just maybe for the pastor or maybe for the place of church or a service or, or a pulpit setting. No, no, it's not. Preaching means to speak forth, to speak out, to herald, to announce out loud, to open your mouth and, and announce the good news. And that's exactly what John the Baptist was doing. He was, he was preaching. He was, he was telling the truth. He was speaking forth. And what was he speaking forth? The baptism of repentance. This is true Bible preaching right here. You know what the gospel is? You know what the message of preaching that he gives here? It is in one word found, and it's the word of repentance. There's so many people that think they preach or they think that they're preaching the gospel. But I want you to know something. The gospel without repentance, that's not the gospel. The gospel always involves repentance. It always involves you turning away from your sin and turning to God. And this is a message that many people today don't want to hear. It's the message of, of repentance. And the word repentance is not a word of feeling. Sometimes we think, well, you know what? Repentance means that I feel bad for what I did. Or repentance means that I said sorry. That is not what repentance is. I want you to know that. It is not a word about feelings. It is a word requiring action. Remember that today. Repentance is not about how you feel. Repentance is about how you behave. In fact, the word repentance means a change of mind. Remember that today, a change of mind. That means that you were living your life in one direction. You change your mind. You stop and you change the direction of your life going a different way. That there was a time that your mind was living for the things of this world or living for the things of this flesh or serving the things of this life but you have had a change of mind, a transformation has happened. And because that transformation has happened, there's been a change of direction. So what is it that John is saying here? How is he preaching? He's preaching a baptism of repentance. And I think that the, the word baptism is important for us to look at because it means to dip or it means to immerse, right? When you've been baptized after you've given your life to Christ and you go out to the waters of baptism and the pastor there prays for you and he now immerses you under the waters, it's a representation that you have now died to the old life and you are raised to new life in Christ Jesus. It is a representation outwardly that something inwardly has already happened. The Lord has washed away your sins. You're not living for the old life, you're living for the new life. There's some people that oftentimes come up and we're about to pray for them. They'll say, you know, would you hold me down a little longer? I just had a bad pass. <laughs> but that's just an outward representation. It means to dip, it means to immerse baptism. 
but it also means to identify with. Would you know that today? Baptism means to identify with. When you're baptized, you're identifying with Christ now. You're identifying that you no longer are living a life of sin. You no longer are living a life after the flesh or after the sinful nature now. So what John is doing here is he's telling his listeners, identify with the message of repentance. When we're baptized publicly, what we're saying is that we are identifying that we've turned away from our sins and we're turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had a change of mind. We've been forgiven from the inside out. This is an outward sign of the inward work that's taken place. Now, when you think about John's baptism, identifying with Christ, his baptism was looking forward to the work of the Messiah, that the Messiah would come to deliver the people of their sins. The baptism that John preached about was a baptism of repentance that looked toward God and toward the coming Messiah. The baptism that we experience today looks back at what Jesus Christ already did in the finished work of the cross. That we're baptized because we have been washed by the blood of the lamb through the sacrifice of the cross. We, we have been identified with Christ Jesus as we've turned our life over to God. That is what repentance means. In fact, this is how Peter preaches as well in Acts chapter two. He's filled with the spirit and he preaches this message. In Acts 2.38, he said, and Peter said to them, repent, turn to God, turn away from sin and let every one of you be baptized or identify, notice, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, for forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is the very message that John is preaching. He's preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I want you to circle the word for in your Bible. It's important because there are many people during that time that they were being baptized as Gentiles into Judaism. And they were being baptized into Judaism to make themselves believe that now as they, in their own work, in their own strength, in their own human effort, by following the law, they can be right with God. So John is saying, I'm not talking about that baptism. I'm talking about a different baptism. I'm talking about a baptism that, that washes away your sins. I'm talking about a baptism that, that provides forgiveness of sins. That's what the word remission means, forgiveness of sins, liberation of sin deliverance of sin. Be baptized, identifying that you have been delivered from a life of sin. That as you've turned your life over to God and looked towards the coming of the Messiah and received him, you're renouncing the old way of life. That's what repentance means. I am following Christ and I'm not looking back. Repentance is not you following Christ, but on the weekends, you look back. Repentance means you're following Christ in obedience. So he's saying, testify now of the forgiveness that you've already received. When you turn your life over to him, be baptized as you are making a, a public declaration that you follow the way and the message of Jesus. Don't you love here that regardless of who was listening, the message was the same? You know what the message is? Repent. 
The message is that he's not watering down the message. He's not changing the message for the people that are listening. He's saying you have to realize that repentance is required for you to be right with God. Because unless you repent, I'll tell you this today, how can you be forgiven? You can't be forgiven of something that you have not repented from yet. So what John is saying, he's telling the people that are listening, he's saying, make a change of mind. Don't just feel sorry about your sins. Repentance speaks of a change of direction, not a sorrow of heart. Now, when we talk about this, you, you have to understand that it's only the blood of Jesus that can wash away our sins from our soul. It's only the blood of Jesus. It's nothing that you can do. But yes, repentance is required in order for us to truly be saved and walk with Jesus. It's the evidence that we put our faith in Christ Jesus. It means that we've been transformed, that we have been changed, that we have converted. Do you remember that word converted, conversion? I think it's a word that we don't hear too often, but it's a very important word. Conversion means that you have changed from, from one person and you are converted into a different person. You have been changed into the image of Jesus Christ now. Why? Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit came into your heart. You had a change of mind. There's a change of direction. There has been conviction and then conversion. And I want you to know that today, without conviction, you'll never have conversion. John the Baptist came to speak of the issue of the heart. You know what it was? Sin. And this is why he says, be baptized, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. You have to know your sin. You have to know that you're sinful, and then you have to forsake your sin. That, that is the true evidence that you have been saved, that you have repented, that your life has changed. Saving faith is always followed by repentance. It means that you have a new life, you've turned away from the old life, and you turn to God for the new life. In fact, I want to invite you that you would put a marker there in Luke chapter 3, and you would turn your Bible to Romans 6, because Paul here gives the church of Rome, the Christians there, a picture of what repentance looks like. This is what repentance means. This is what it looks like to be cleansed from sin and to walk with God. This is where conviction turns into conversion. After we've heard the word of God, we have a change of mind. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, and then there is a transformation. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Notice what Paul says. Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Don't you know that those that have identified with Christ through baptism have also declare that they have died through that old life. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Repentance means we have a new life. That we're walking, practicing, living, obeying a new life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, notice what happens. Certainly we also should be in the likeness of his resurrection. That God has raised, the, no, no longer does death or sin 
have power over, so we're transformed. Knowing this, verse 6 of Romans 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin may be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The body of sin may be done away with. We no longer serve the old sinful nature. It's done away with. We no longer follow the appetites, the desires, the gratifications, the pleasures of the flesh. It is done away with. We're not serving the flesh. For he who has died has been freed from sin. We died to sin. We're free of sin. This is repentance. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion or power over us. He has saved us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin and death. For the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God likewise. Verse 11, this is important here. You reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Put sin out of business. You know, in your life, you no longer serve. You're not open for sin anymore. It is out of business now. It's that word logazomai in the Greek. It means to render now inoperative. It no longer works. And what he's describing here is that you would recognize or die indeed to sin, but be alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You no longer are living the life you used to live. That is exactly what repentance means. There's been a change of mind. There's been a conviction that has led you to conversion. You've died to sin, and now you are alive by the Spirit to God. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 3, because in verse 4, it speaks to us regarding the message that John the Baptist would bring and how he would bring it. The ministry of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 4, happened the way God said it would happen. Don't you love that the Scripture confirms the Scripture? That the Bible always confirms the Bible? And there in verse 4, it says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, This is the way it happened. It happened according to prophecy. It happened just the way God said it would. The way that the Lord works always happens the way that he said it would. It is according to the words of Isaiah the prophet when he said this, when, when he announced, this is coming from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, where Isaiah the prophet would announce, he would prophesy that before the Lord comes, the Messiah comes, there would come a prophet, and that prophet would declare the coming of the Messiah before he came. And the declaration goes like this in verse 4, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is what Isaiah said about John the Baptist. He is going to be that forerunner, that messenger, the prophet that comes before the Messiah. He will be as a voice that is crying in the wilderness. Now, it's not simply the physical wilderness that he's referring to here. The prophet John the Baptist would be as one crying in the wilderness physically, yes, but the wilderness that he speaks about is a spiritual wilderness. The wilderness of the heart he's talking about. He's going to be like one crying out in the wilderness spiritually 
through the wilderness of the heart of man that is sinful. And notice how the message will come. It will tell us in verse 4, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see, that messenger that would come before the Messiah, speaking of the sin in the heart of man, would say, prepare for the Lord's coming. That is the message that John the Baptist gave, set things right with God. You notice what we need to do today? We need to examine our hearts and make things right with God. In fact, there in verse 4, as he describes, prepare the way of the Lord, what he's saying is, clear the way for the Lord Jesus in your life. The preparation or the arrival of a king during this time would mean that someone would come before the king down the road where he would journey from and he would remove any obstacle or hindrance from that road. So John the Baptist is, is coming in that like manner, clearing any obstruction or any hindrance, announcing to the people, clear the way on the road, the king is coming. What path is he describing there in verse 4 where he says, make his path straight? He's speaking of the path of repentance in the wilderness of the heart of the people. Make the path there in your heart straight. Smooth out that place in your heart that has hindrance, that has obstacles for the king coming. John here is that herald, that announcer, that is coming before that royal procession to make sure that the roads were ready for the king. So you know when we read these verses from Isaiah, what it reminds us of, of John the Baptist, even through Luke, he's saying, prepare your heart for the coming Messiah. Prepare your heart for God's salvation. Examine your heart, take an inventory of your heart. Sin must be recognized. Sin must be dealt with. Examine yourself. And notice verse 5, he speaks of the condition of the heart when he says, make the path straight or make things right with God. Repent, turn to him. In verse 5, he says, every valley shall be filled. He speaks of the valleys. He speaks of the mountains. He speaks of the roads. And he speaks of the rough ways. But the valley, when he's speaking of the road of the heart there, speaks of those deep areas in our hearts, those areas where we have to dig deep into the hidden places of the heart and find out where that sin is at. <laughs> Make the path straight. Examine even that valley place in your heart, the, the, the place that is dark, the place that is depraved in the heart. Even the deep hidden things of the heart, those things need to be dealt with. The message of repentance comes to us even in those deep areas of our heart that no one else knows about that are hidden. Those places must be dealt with. The valley places. But not only the hidden valley areas, also notice what he says next. And every mountain and hill brought low. This is amazing here. He says in the mountain hills and the mountain tops, they have to be brought low. What, what, what does he mean by the mountains and the hills? This represents oftentimes the people that are raised up in self-righteousness or pride. Your life of self-righteousness, your life of pride has to be pulled down in submission before God now. Your hidden sin in the heart and the life of self-righteousness and pride must be humbled and submitted before God. So the valleys of sin, 
the mountaintops of pride and self-righteousness. Notice as it continues there in verse five, the crooked places shall be made straight. When you think of a crooked place, what do you think? Uh, of something that is depraved, uh, of something that's perverse, of something that is deception. And in your heart, those areas that are perverse, that are devious, that are filled with deception, that, that, that crooked heart that you have, it has to be dealt with as well. So no matter whether it's a hidden sin, no matter whether it's selfishness or pride, no matter whether it's a perverse, devious deception that you're living in, or finally here in verse five, and the rough ways smooth, all of this painting a picture of the heart. What is the rough ways that need to be made smooth? Anything that lays on the road of repentance, anything that's there as a hindrance, Anything that's there as an obstruction, you know what it has to be made? Smooth. What is hindering the king from coming on that road of repentance in your heart? You know what it can be? It can be self-love that doesn't make that path smooth. It can be the love of the world that is hindering that road of repentance and highway of holiness in your heart. It could also mean the love of money. Oftentimes we are in love with the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And what he's saying is deal with every area of your life and prepare your heart for the coming of the Messiah. That is what John the Baptist is doing. He, he is bringing everyone to the same place, to a common plane. He's a leveler. He speaks to everyone in every situation, in every season, with any type of background, whether you have hidden sin, whether you're lifted in self-righteousness and pride, whether you're crooked in depravity and deception and perversion, whether they're the things of the world that are hindering the road for the king to come into your heart, he's a leveler bringing everyone to that common place of the recognition of their own sin. You see here, there is no way to escape for them to acknowledge that there is sin in their lives. Now, why does he talk about sin this way? Because unless you know that you are a sinner, then you cannot be saved. And here comes the good news in verse six, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is the ministry of John the Baptist. He would bring now the revelation of sin in the heart of man and because now man is aware of their sin, all flesh, all people shall see the salvation of God. Now, how many of us are grateful there that it says all flesh? It's not some people, the gospel came to all who would believe. All people will see the salvation of God, that he will save us from the penalty of sin, that Christ would save us from the punishment of sin that he would save us from also the presence of sin one day, everyone will see the salvation of God, which is Christ Jesus. So he presents the introduction of how John would come, clearing out the road, preparing the way for the Messiah. What is the way? The road of repentance in the hearts of man's wilderness. Now notice the farmer, he goes from the road builder to a farmer here. And he speaks with holy boldness here in verse seven. He's straightforward, he, he rebukes the crowds. And in verse seven it says, then he came to the multitudes 
that came out to be baptized by him. You have to understand here that the people were coming to be baptized by John. And he knew that it was drawing many people. But you know, he wasn't in the ministry. He, he, he wasn't preaching. He, he wasn't called by God to be popular. There's so many people today that want to serve the Lord to be popular. He was there to preach the message of repentance. He didn't water down the truth. He didn't try to attract the crowds. As the crowds came to him, he, he knew that they outwardly wanted to be baptized, but they were going to go back and still live with those hidden areas of sin in their hearts, still lifted in self-righteousness and pride. He knew that their intent, that their motive was not pure, that their actions didn't represent repentance. He knew that they were not interested in the kind of king that he was presenting. He knew that very well by their actions. So notice how he greets them. I mean, this is the type of greeting. If people were greeted this way, they would not come to church anymore today. This is not what you hear on the radio. This is not what you hear on TV today. But he says, brood of vipers, you family of snakes. That's what he calls them. He calls them that because he's calling them out. He said, you're coming wanting to still live in your sin and saying, would you still baptize me? That's not gonna work, he says, that's shallow repentance. And what we're doing here is we're going to the deep waters of repentance and saying, Lord, change my life. So he looks at them, he says, you are a family of snakes. The snake here symbolizing deceivers. You're liars. You know what the only thing worse about lying to somebody else is when you lie to yourself. Is when you think that you are right with God when you are not. And he's challenging them. He's exhorting them. He, he's rebuking them here. He, he doesn't hold back. In verse seven, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's talked to them about their sin. And he's also talking to them about judgment. This is a true presentation of the gospel having given an announcement of salvation, also of sin and also of judgment. Who told you, who warned you of the eternal judgment of the wrath of God that would come on those who refused to turn their life over to him? You know what he was saying to those people that came, the multitude in the crowds? He was telling them, why are you here anyways? What are you doing here? Why'd you come? He's challenging the deception in their hearts and the hypocrisy that exists there. Because he knew you just wanna be baptized, but you don't wanna change. You wanna just show up, but you have no intention of changing. You still desire to live in your sin. You know what he's destroying there? He's destroying the false assurance of thinking that they were right with God when they were not. Well, once you're aware that you're not right with God, then you can be right with God. Once you're aware that you are not right with God, then you can be right with God. Because you realize that only Jesus Christ can wash away your sins. And so he's saying, God has told us what to do. God has told us what to be. So don't pretend to be something that you're not. And he's going to speak about the application of repentance in the following few verses. But notice this, 
our faith, our life, our walk with Christ is first and foremost at the core, at the center. It's based on the incarnation that God became flesh. He was born to die on the cross for our sins. He was buried, he was resurrected through atonement of his blood. We have been forgiven through the resurrection. Sin and death no longer have power over our lives and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're walking a new life in Jesus. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ right there. And that is the root of it. So he's saying if the root is genuine, if the root in your heart is genuine, that there's gonna be fruit of repentance. Do you see he goes to the root of the problem and then the fruit of the matter? He's looking at the fruit. If the roots are genuine, the fruit will bear as well. Well, what does the, the fruit of repentance look like? It looks like love, it looks like goodness, it looks like compassion, it looks like generosity, it looks like justice. Holiness. This is why he says in verse 8, Therefore, having heard the message of repentance, having received the truth, bear fruit worthy of repentance. The way you live your life matters. You cannot come, be a part of the crowd, and think that you are right with God. That is not just for them, that's for you today too. You know what he says here? Prove by the way that you live that you have repented from your sins and turned to God. Reflect on that personal sin. Know that. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Why? Because true repentance is always followed by fruit. You know what's the basic fruit in the Christian life? To know that you truly have repented, that regeneration has happened, that you have been born again. The true reflection of that, evidence of that is love. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life after you've repented and turned your heart over to him, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And from that, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. That is the evidence of a heart that has repented. So John says religious talking, religious profession is worthless without doing or action. You can do all the things that you need to do outwardly. You can even profess with words. You can be a part of the crowd, but without your practice, it is meaningless. It is in vain to repent with your lips if you haven't repented with your life. We have to repent with your lives. To say you're sorry, to say you won't do it again, it is only hypocrisy unless you show that you're really sorry by giving up that sin. That is the core of what repentance means. You have turned away. And notice what he goes on and he tells him this in verse eight. And don't begin to say to yourselves, don't say to each other, well, you know, we don't have to do that. We have Abraham as our father. <laughs> For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. They were thinking that because Abraham is my father, I'm right with God because I'm a, of the Jewish descent, because I'm a Jew, I am right with God. Abraham's faith, what Abraham did, is not sufficient for your own salvation. Don't, don't even begin to say that, please, he says. You think you're saved because of Abraham? It, it doesn't matter who your dad is. 
It matters, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And he goes straight to the issue of the heart. You can be tied up in your religion and your tradition and your spiritual even heritage. Yes, Abraham had faith. Yes, Abraham obeyed. Yes, Abraham was considered righteous, but are there any signs that you have? That, that was him, but what about you? I'll tell you, John says, that God is able to raise up children from these stones. He can raise up children unto Abraham from stones or meaningless objects, or also he can raise up children to Abraham even from the stony hearts of Gentile people. So do not put your faith in another man. To put your faith in Abraham is to shift the focus off of Christ Jesus and put him somewhere else. God is looking at the heart here. And saving faith, notice, it is always a personal thing. It is between you and God. And he says in verse 9, having spoken the reality to them, and even now, right now, it is urgent. The axe is laid to the root. It is almost as if he's given them a picture of one that is having an axe to the root of the tree, ready to cut it. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut and thrown into the fire. An explanation, an illustration of judgment. The people that live a life apart from good fruit show that they have not repented. They are not saved. They will be cut and they will be thrown into the fire. He speaks to them about hell. He speaks to them about danger to unfruitful trees. Now notice how he says good fruit. That means if there is something such as good fruit, there's also something such as bad fruit. But good fruit is the evidence of true repentance. And he speaks to them of the eternal judgment. He, he speaks to them about health here. Think about this, judgment. Because never will a man seek heaven until he's convinced he's on his way to hell. That's what it's gonna take oftentimes. He's going to the root of the heart, not impressed with the religious profession that doesn't produce fruit. Not turned by the popularity, who he was gonna please, who he was not gonna please, who is offended, who is mad at what he said, whether they like me or, or they don't like me. That is not the message of the prophet preaching the word. You know what I love about John? He was not a man pleaser. There are too many man pleasers today that are preaching a different gospel to try to gain the crowds. It's, it's a different gospel. It's not the Bible gospel. It is unadulterated, what we hear here from John. It is unpolluted. It is undefiled, it's the gospel of repentance, the gospel of salvation. And so notice here, he's described as the counselor quickly from verses 10 to 14, where it requires a response, repentance. This is what good fruit looks like. This is the good fruit he's referring to. We saw him there first as a road builder, as a farmer, but notice the counselor, he's teaching them now. So they come to him and the people ask them, what shall we do then? If that's not the way we're supposed to live our lives, then how is it? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give him to one that has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. This is love in action. Good fruit is expressed number one in love in action. He's saying, if you have two tunics, you have an undergarment and an outer garment, you have two of something and you see someone that's in need, there's no reason for you to have two. Give to the person that has none. 
Well, we look at the coming judgment after having realized that God will judge those who give bad fruit in their lives, those who have not repented. This is what you should do as a response of repentance in your life. Go and meet the needs of those around you. Those that have no clothes, meet the need that they have presently. Those that have no food, those that are hungry, and you would provide food for them as well. Notice what he's saying. Stop living a selfish life. You can't say you repented if you're still living a life for yourself. I want to give you three points as we look at the last few verses. Number one, the repentant heart will show generosity and compassion to those in need. Those that have truly repented will show generosity and will show compassion to the people in need. This is the good fruit. A genuine change of mind results in a change of action that looks like generosity. It looks like compassion to people in need. You know what he's asking them? I'm asking you, John the Baptist said. I'm counseling you, I'm teaching you to return back to your everyday life after leaving here and go back to where you have been planted and there bear fruits. You go back to your everyday life and there where you're planted, bear good fruit. You see someone in need, then demonstrate love in action, acts of generosity and compassion. But the tax collectors also came to him in verse 12. And they said to him, those that came to be baptized, teacher, what shall we do? They're interested. They, they want to know, how, how am I supposed to change my life? And they said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Notice what he tells them. They asked, what should we do? And he says, collect no more than what is due to you, than what the government requires of you, because some added interest in order to cover their own costs and expenses, and they were paid by their income as well. But he says, be honest in your occupation. That is also good fruit. Don't rip people off. <laughs> so number two, the repentant heart will work at the job with integrity. What does good fruit look like? Good fruit looks like you working at the job tomorrow with integrity. That is a sign of a repentant heart. That not only are you meeting the needs of those around you with compassion and generosity, but you're also working at the job with integrity. Integrity in the everyday, ordinary things of life mark true repentance. That is another sign of repentance. And then the soldiers came to him, verse 14, as we conclude, and they said, likewise, they asked him, saying, and what shall we do? And this is amazing, because what did a soldier have? Authority. What did the soldier have? Power. And what do you see when oftentimes people have authority and power? What do they like to do? They like to abuse power, and they like to abuse authority. They want to tell you who they are. They like to flex on you. Don't you know who I am? They try to threaten you. They try to intimidate you. Beware that if you have authority, if you have power, you don't try to intimidate people. That is not a sign of true repentance. You know what he says? He tells those Roman soldiers who have power, have authority, don't intimidate anyone. Don't accuse anyone falsely. Don't make false accusations. Don't use your authority for personal gain. This is a sign of true repentance. He says, don't intimidate. Don't accuse falsely. And lastly, be content with your wages. Don't use your authority to get something from someone else. There are oftentimes that people want to flex their power to get something that 
personally benefits them. Well, number three, the repentant heart will not abuse power and they will be living a life of contentment. They will not abuse power, live a life of contentment. Why is it that he speaks to the heart of the issue? Because he wants to make sure that the crowds are sincere. He wants to make sure that the heart is sincere. You know what, what is it that he's calling them for? He's calling them for repentance. He's calling them to change. He's calling them to faith. He's calling them to works. The Bible says that he has called us for good works that God prepared before him that we should walk in them. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 1 as we come to a close. 1 John 1 verse 5. Again, another picture for us of what repentance means, what a new life means. What does it mean to walk with Jesus? First John 1, verse 5. This is what the apostle says, and this is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is who he is. He is pure. He is holy. There is no sin in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, notice you say you're walking with the Lord, but you're walking in darkness. We lie and we don't practice the truth. The apostle says it very clear, again, supporting the message of repentance. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. What are we called to do to walk in the light as he is in the light? We have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with one another. His blood cleanses us from all sin. Verse eight, if we say we have no sin, today you say right there, well, I'm right with God, even though you're living in sin. Notice what the reality, the truth of that is. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But here's the promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise that we have in Jesus Christ, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many of us are grateful for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? So maybe you're here today and you're saying, I need to make that path straight. I need to make the way of the king in my life straight, remove every obstacle, every sin from the deep areas of my heart. Maybe the lifted pride and self-righteousness in my life. The corruption that is taking place of sin. Or those obstacles that are on the road of my heart that I've picked up from this world. And you need to repent to turn to God. If that's you right now, I want to remind you of the promise we just read. That if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness.